of Fitz and Other Stories by Mark Twain, Chapter 13 Rogers. This man Rogers happened upon me and introduced himself at the town of blank 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 in the south of England, where I stayed a while. His stepfather had married a distant relative of mine who was afterward hanged, and so he seemed to think a blood relationship existed between us. He came in every day and sat down and talked. Of all the bland, serene human curiosities I ever saw, I think he was the chiefest. He desired to look at my new chimney-pot hat. I was very willing, for I thought he would notice the name of the great Oxford Street hatter in it, and respect me accordingly. But he turned it about with a sort of grave compassion, pointed out two or three blemishes, and said that I, being so recently arrived, could not be expected to know where to supply myself. Said he would send me the address of his hatter. Then he said, Pardon me, and proceeded to cut a neat circle of red tissue paper, daintily notched the edges of it, took the mucilage, and pasted it in my hat so as to cover the manufacturer's name. He said, No one will know now where you got it. I will send you a hat-tip of my hatter and you can paste it over this tissue circle. It was the calmest, coolest thing. I never admired a man so much in my life. Mind, he did this while his own hat sat offensively near our noses on the table, an ancient extinguisher of the slouch pattern, limp and shapeless with age, discolored by vicissitudes of the weather, and banded by an equator of bear's grease that had stewed through. Another time he examined my coat. I had no terrors, for over my tailor's door was the legend, By special appointment, tailor to H. R. H., the Prince of Wales, etc. I did not know at the time that the most of the tailor shops had the same sign out, and that whereas it takes nine tailors to make an ordinary man, it takes a hundred and fifty to make a prince. He was full of compassion for my coat, wrote down the address of his tailor for me, did not tell me to mention my nom de plume, and the tailor would put his best work on my garment, as complimentary people sometimes do, but said his tailor would hardly trouble himself for an unknown person. Unknown person, when I thought I was so celebrated in England. That was the cruelest cut. But cautioned me to mention his name, and it would be all right. Thinking to be facetious, I said, But he might sit up all night and injure his health. "'Well, let him,' said Rogers. "'I've done enough for him, for him to show some appreciation of it.' "'I might as well have tried to disconcert a mummy with my facetiousness,' said Rogers. "'I get all my coats there, and they're the only coats fit to be seen in.' I made one more attempt. I said, "'I wish you had brought one with you. I would like to look at it.' "'Bless your heart! Haven't I got one on? This article is Morgan's make.' I examined it. The coat had been bought ready-made, of a Chatham Street Jew, without any question, about 1848. It probably cost four dollars when it was new. It was ripped, it was frayed, it was napless and greasy. I could not resist showing him where it was ripped. It so affected him that I was almost sorry I had done it. First he seemed plunged into a bottomless abyss of grief, then he roused himself, made a feint with his hands, as if waving off the pity of a nation, and said, with what seemed to me a manufactured emotion, 
no matter no matter don't mind me do not bother about it i can get another when he was thoroughly restored so that he could examine the rip and command his feelings he said ah now he understood it his servant must have done it while dressing him that morning his servant there was something awe-inspiring in effrontery like this nearly every day he interested himself in some article of my clothing one would hardly have expected this sort of infatuation in a man who always wore the same suit and it a suit that seemed coeval with the conquest it was an unworthy ambition perhaps but i did wish i could make this man admire something about me or something i did you would have felt the same way i saw my opportunity i was about to return to london and had listed my soiled linen for the wash it made quite an imposing mountain in the corner of the room fifty-four pieces i hoped he would fancy it was the accumulation of a single week i took up the wash list as if to see that it was all right and then tossed it on the table with pretended forgetfulness sure enough he took it up and ran his eye along down to the grand total then he said you get off easy and laid it down again his gloves were the saddest ruin but he told me where i could get some like them his shoes would hardly hold walnuts without leaking but he liked to put his feet up on the mantelpiece and contemplate them he wore a dim glass breastpin which he called a morphilitic diamond or whatever that may mean and said only two of them had ever been found the emperor of china had the other one afterward in london it was a pleasure to me to see this fantastic vagabond come marching into the lobby of the hotel in his grand-ducal way for he always had some new imaginary grandeur to develop there was nothing stale about him but his clothes if he addressed me when strangers were about he always raised his voice a little and called me sir richard or general or your lordship and when people began to stare and look deferential he would fall to inquiring in a casual way why i disappointed the duke of argyle the night before and then remind me of our engagement at the duke of westminster's for the following day i think that for the time being these things were realities to him he once came and invited me to go with him and spend the evening with the earl of warwick at his town-house i said i had received no formal invitation he said that that was of no consequence the earl had no formalities for him or his friends i asked if i could go just as i was he said no that would hardly do evening dress was requisite at night in any gentleman's house he said he would wait while i dressed and then we would go to his apartment and i could take a bottle of champagne and a cigar while he dressed i was very willing to see how this enterprise would turn out so i dressed and we started to his lodgings he said if i didn't mind we would walk so we tramped some four miles through the mud and fog and finally found his apartments they consisted of a single room over a barber's shop in a back street two chairs a small table an ancient valise a wash-basin and pitcher both on the floor in a corner an unmade bed a fragment of a looking-glass and a flower-pot with a perishing little rose geranium in it which he called a century plant and said it had not bloomed now for upward of two centuries given to him by the late lord palmerston been offered a prodigious sum for it these were the contents of the room 
also a brass candlestick and a part of a candle rogers lit the candle and told me to sit down and make myself at home he said he hoped i was thirsty because he would surprise my palate with an article of champagne that seldom got into a commoner's system or would i prefer sherry or port said he had port in bottles that were swathed in stratified cobwebs every stratum representing a generation and as for his cigars well i should judge of them myself then he put his head out at the door and called sackville no answer hi sackville no answer now what the devil can have become of that butler i never allow a servant to oh confound that idiot he's got the keys can't get into the other rooms without the keys i was just wondering at his intrepidity and in still keeping up the delusion of the champagne and trying to imagine how he was going to get out of the difficulty now he stopped calling sackville and began to call anglesey but anglesey didn't come he said this is the second time that that equerry has been absent without leave to-morrow i'll discharge him now he began to whoop for thomas but thomas didn't answer then for theodore but no theodore replied well i give it up said rogers the servants never expect me at this hour and so they're all off on a lark might get along without the equerry and the page but can't have any wine or cigars without the butler and can't dress without my valet i offered to help him dress but he would not hear of it and besides he said he would not feel comfortable unless dressed by a practised hand however he finally concluded that he was such old friends with the earl that it would not make any difference how he was dressed so we took a cab he gave the driver some directions and we started by and by we stopped before a large house and got out i never had seen this man with a collar on he now stepped under a lamp and got a venerable paper-collar out of his coat-pocket along with a hoary cravat and put them on he ascended the stoop and entered presently he reappeared descended rapidly and said come quick we hurried away and turned the corner now we're safe he said and took off his collar and cravat and returned them to his pocket made a mighty narrow escape said he how said i but george the countess was there well what of that don't she know you know me absolutely worships me i just did happen to catch a glimpse of her before she saw me and out i shot haven't seen her for two months to rush in on her without any warning might have been fatal she could not have stood it i didn't know she was in town thought she was at the castle let me lean on you uh, just a moment there now i am better thank you thank you ever so much lord bless me what an escape so i never got to call on the earl after all but i marked the house for future reference it proved to be an ordinary family hotel with about a thousand plebeians roosting in it in most things rogers was by no means a fool in some things it was plain enough that he was a fool but he certainly did not know it he was in the deadest earnest in these matters he died at sea last summer as the earl of ramsgate end of chapter 13 and end of alonzo fitz and other stories by mark twain read by john greenman